welcome to More Tea Vicar, our weekly podcast about culture, theology and life, where Wayne and I sit down and talk about a live issue and how we as followers of Jesus can respond. This week, we're talking about anti-disestablishmentarianism. That is a really long word, James. It's... I didn't even know what it meant. Well, establishmentarianism <laughs> yes. would be, uh, it's to do with the Church of England. So establishmentarianism is yeah. the Church of England as part of the, the established church, part of yes. the state. Disestablishmentarianism is the idea that the church and state should be separated. Okay. So anti-disestablishmentarianism <laughs> is not that you think the church should be um, adjoined to the state, but it's you are against the movement to... to Unjoin. unjoin the church from the state. <laughs> the reason we're talking about this is, <laughs> is that in we're we're committed to not ducking the issues yes. here at, at Morty Vicar, and um, we're aware that in the last week there's been a big eruption of debate around same-sex marriage in the church, and we are going to address that and other issues in human sexuality in. in um, future forthcoming weeks. episodes but um so tune in for those um but what we want to do is we want to lay some groundwork for why there's there's tension underneath this which we kind of alluded to in previous episodes when we've been talking about the relationship between church and culture and um, but we want to just lay some some groundwork so we're going to attempt to do that in a theologically erudite and relaxed manner in the next few minutes Wayne, over to you Thank you. Um, so, so essentially, let's let's start. So, so we've talked in previous podcasts about that we're in post Christendom. Yes. So we are in a culture that is no no longer thinks of itself as Christian. The last yeah. census, Christians were less. You know, people yeah. who identified as Christians were less than fifty percent for the first time. But what, of course, is interesting is the vast majority of those people um, don't go anywhere near a church on a Sunday. And yeah. and if you looked at their lives, wouldn't live what's called a, a you know what we would term as a kind of Christian life yes. they, they just culturally um we've referenced the author tom holland and his book dominion about yeah. how christendom is a culture that kind of has influenced how we do what we do yeah um, so if you think back to so if you think of where you're living right now wherever that is and you think back to whoever was living in um your address 30 40 years ago it may even be you listening um those people who were living there and those around them might have thought of themselves more as Christians, um, typically, regardless of their attendance, than those living around you now. And so for, that, that's for, like for example, there would have been nothing. Um, so there was nothing like in the 1950s, um, you know, you see these pictures of nurses praying as they started a, a ward. Um, yeah. um, duty together and they would begin with prayer now yeah. we hear news that you can't wear a cross if you're a nurse yeah. so you can't offer so to pray for parents there's quite significant tangible shifts that have happened within the culture of this country um, that uh, give rise to that, that confidence to say we're no longer in Christendom where Christianity um, dominion dom rule Christianity kind of rules the culture and the way things happen so we're post after Christendom and we live in what the philosopher Charles Taylor would term a secular age and now the interesting thing is we've often thought a secular age meant there would be no thinking about faith but Taylor's um, premise is that a secular age is an age of choice yeah so this kind of um, multi-cultural multi-ethnic multi-faith multi-worldview yeah. age so it's 
you can be a Christian, you can be a Jew, you can be a Muslim, you can be Buddhist, you can be a Hindu, uh, you can be a whole load of those things. So yeah. um, a teenager told me that lots of their contemporaries love Jainism uh, because it's kind of anti-war. You know, as in you, yeah. can, pick, you can pick whatever you yeah, want yeah. or nothing. And, and let's say if we had met um, 20 years ago, we didn't know each other quite 20 years ago, um, uh, given, uh, you know, we're not... It, it, precisely on the same um, theology, you know, down to the letter. Um, even then, we we might have had a little bit of misunderstanding or debate about whether we, how far we were into post-Christendom. Yeah. Um, and and whereas now I think we both agree that we're well well into it. Um, but yeah, if I if we'd have this conversation with other clergy colleagues, they might assert, for example, the role of the church in relation to the state, so it, the Church of England being an established church, as an example of the fact that we're not in post Christendom. So they would say that actually Christendom still remains because when the Queen dies, we have a state funeral in Westminster Abbey and when we're preparing to crown our new monarch Charles preparations are being made in the same place. But the interesting thing about just those two things about how post-Christian we are is that when the most watched bit of the Queen's funeral overwhelmingly in terms of viewing figures was which bit? I don't know. It was the procession from Westminster Abbey to St George's in oh, Windsor. Was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, people right. turned on to see the coffin move yeah. far more than they turned on to watch the service. Oh, right. okay. yeah. And of course, there's a massive conversation going on around yeah. what the coronation should look like, how yeah. grand it should be, and how other yeah. faiths and other people yeah, should yeah, be yeah. involved. Yeah. So that okay. just that, that wouldn't have happened yeah. in 1952. Yeah. Um, so, so we're in this kind of post-Christian world, and in post-Christendom, by and large, um, faith takes a backseat yes in terms of its its prominence within culture and people of faith um almost kind of there's I'm, i didn't want to use the word hardening but there's a kind of there's a stronger boundary around what it means to be a person of faith yes um and that is very easily done for non-christian faiths in a post-christian western culture yes. so it's it's the jew jewish it's very it's, it's just much easier to draw a boundary about what it is to be a jew or what it is to be a practicing yeah. hindu or a sikh yeah. or a muslim um and, and interesting enough there's an, and then with christianity it's a little bit harder because hey aren't we all supposed to be christians um and and then interestingly enough there is a, a re, there's a difference between what we call the nonconformists so the churches like a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church Methodism, and, and yeah. Methodism and then the dear old Church of England which yeah. um, is as you said it's the established church what does that mean James? okay so the the established church is the in this country is the Church of England um, an Anglican church and what that means is that for for us the head of our church. Um, it, well, biblically, we believe it's Jesus Christ, but constitutionally, it is the the monarch, and we then are um, our governance is intertwined. So those who are elected bishops amongst from amongst those bishops are representatives in government, so in the House of Lords, um, and there is this relationship that manifests itself in terms of the the monarchy and the coronation funerals, um, and and then it. it uh, goes further down into the laws of the land, which I'm not going to be able to summarise. No, so the church moment. has its own parliament, which is actually part of the wider parliament, yeah. and its laws end up in the House of Lords. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so the, the, the church has its own legal jurisdiction. Um, 
what that means is that the church has a wonderful opportunity when something like uh, a monarch dies or yeah. a monarch is crowned or um, uh, if you think about um, Remembrance Sunday, there's a wonderful opportunity for the church of England as the established church, part of the state, to step in and to reveal faith and to demonstrate yeah. faith at moments that it would never have if it wasn't the established church. And then it works its way out further down the line. So we um, we have, uh, you know, chaplains in hospitals, um, and um, those, the, those are now multi-faith chaplaincies. Yeah. But there's, there's kind of a, this understanding that there's a, um, a religious dimension that emerges out of the heritage of being a Christian nation where chaplaincies originally were... Um, uh, exclusively Ang- Church of England. Um, uh, then you have faith in schools and how that works its way out. Um, and so that the, the Church of England is probably, uh, you know, alongside the Roman Catholics is the, is the most prominent um, delivery of faith schools. And the whole of the country is divided up into parishes. So wherever you live in the country, you have a parish church and you have, unless it's a vacancy, you have a parish priest. You have somebody yeah. who is... Uh, who's there for what's called the cure of souls. Yeah, and you, um, if you're a resident of that parish, have a legal right to vote at their annual meeting of parishioners where the church wardens are elected, elected even if you don't go to church at any point in the year. So so the, the relationship between um, uh, government and state is intertwined. That's what it, it summarised. That's what it means for us to be established. We are, in effect, the Church of England are the, are the, are the spiritual chaplains to the nation hardwired in the constitution because the powers of the prime minister are the powers of the king devolved from sent from the um, devolved from the king down to the prime minister over yeah. a whole series of um, every time they needed money they gave some powers away but the powers of the king come from god yeah so that's why so that's our constitution so it's a wonderful opportunity now it comes with a kind of a conundrum slash problem especially in post christendom which is what <laughs> Well, what, what do you do if most people don't actually believe in God? What do you, you know, we've talked about this before with Liz Trust, you know, so you've got somebody who, who says, uh, who reads, I'm the way, the truth and the life at the, the Queen's funeral from John chapter 14, but says, I don't consider myself to be religious, but I agree with Christian values. If you want to listen to that podcast, that's available at the website back in, I think it would have been September, probably. Well, so what, the what, brief time that she was prime minister. <laughs> what, um, what, what do you do when, when it's, it, when you are a Christian, you're sorry, you're, you're by majority not a Christian nation, um, and yet, which is nearly 50% of the population identify themselves as small c Christian, with probably most of them not realizing what that might mean. Yeah, um, and 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 yet, actually, we have this really significant role in public life. And so there, this is where this role comes in. So so we're, we're getting there. The debate in the Church of England is what does it mean to be the church for the whole nation? Mm. And, and on one side, it means that basically um, we need to be able to um, uh, see ourselves as serving the whole nation yeah. and, um, and enabling them to come no matter what yeah. and to participate no matter what and to and enabling them who so to talk about the idea about um you know belonging without even ever needing to come through or darkening the doors yeah and so there's this kind of one view uh, and there might be some you know i'm being quite simplistic about this but actually that that if 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 person x is the parish priest for that parish that everybody in the parish is yeah. in the church even yeah. if they don't turn up on a sunday and therefore they must they must um irrespective of all sorts of stuff um sort of be welcomed and uh, and be allowed to participate yeah. in the life of faith, and and so the Church of England has managed 
by and large, to hold itself as this neutral chaplain to the nation yeah. over the years. So That's a great who, phrase, chaplain to the nation. The, those who look at it from a, a perhaps a more left-leaning perspective have cynically looked at the Church of England and described as the Tory party at prayer. Um, and those who are right-leaning and have looked at it um, uh, more cynically have looked at reports like Faith in the City that were written by the Church of England in the 1980s and just described it as a kind of a, a spiritual form of socialism. Um, so the, the Church of England has received criticism from both sides around its stance, which it has to adopt in the, the House of Lords. So um, my dad was in the House of Lords as a bishop at, at one point, and he was the convener of the bishops in the House of Lords. So there were points at which they had to decide what what line they were going to take on particular ethical issues um, as they emerged for debate in the House of Lords. But what, but what, what the, the right and the left both have in common then with you to the established or to the state church is that as society's ethics and mores shift, yeah. um, the state church should reflect those shifts. So uh, where you see this really starkly, actually, if you want to think about state churches in Scandinavia, yeah. where, where you pay a tax and the state, yes. it, to talk about yeah. it, it is really the state church. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And actually, the, the Lutheran churches in Scandinavia um, go along with society's ethics as they change because oh. be, because because they are effectively civil servants. Yes. And so, so if a law is passed around... Um, Whatever it might be, whatever ethical ethical issue it might be, the state church in the, in Scandinavia has to go along with that because it, it's it's an, it's effectively an arm of the civil service. Yes. Now, Church of England isn't quite there, but that is the expectation, both right and left, is that the church should reflect society, the best of society. Um, and this is why you can always get these things whenever the bishops do challenge. They yeah. all, the, the politicians are always like, how dare you challenge yeah, us? Because yeah. you're basically, you're there to serve us. And to serve us is you must look like us, reflect us, and shouldn't really question us. Yes, and some of that comes down to theological foundations that those denominations had. So there's a bishop in Denmark called Bishop Minster in the 19th century who um, made the theological statement that every Dane born was born a Christian. Um, the philosopher Kierkegaard took him to town on that. Um, uh, but we, we in the Church of England have... Um, don't have such closely defined understandings that there we have these three stands within um, the, the Church of England going back a long way of of essentially uh, Protestant or evangelical um, reformed whatever terminology you use liberal and, and Anglo-Catholic and and the mix of those three has um, always meant that we've never quite been able to define ourselves distinctly as having one theological position on issues like um, rebirth. So actually, is everybody born a Christian or not? Um, and, and what what we've typically landed on is a, is a fudge in saying that everyone has the right to be baptised, but they can be delayed for a reasonable period of instruction. So the access is to everyone, but but actually there is a, there is a bar, of, you know, you, ne you need to come and, and be baptised. So we've, we've kind of held... Um, these theological tensions together over the years which means that being an established church we we haven't kind of imposed a clear theology on the on that chaplaincy to the nation and there's been two times in history where the church has wrestled with its views on stuff that has changed in the nation so attitudes towards divorce and remarriage yeah. and then attitudes towards in the church women in leadership but that actually runs alongside the empowerment of women in society very yeah. much after the Second World War. Yeah. 
uh, and those were quite drawn out processes for the church. Yeah. Um, and um, and the church stayed together through those. Yes. Um, because both of those are recognised within the w- w- within kind of Christian theology as as, as, as issues which are called ADFOR or for debate. They are issues yeah. that are recognised that that actually it's possible to agree to disagree because as you as you wrestle with scripture, tradition, and reason, in these yeah. there are some people who go. Um, actually, you know, um, headship in the church is male, and some people who go headship in the church doesn't have to be male. Yes, and but they can both go. But actually, we can see why this is not a what's called a major gospel issue. And the same around marriage after divorce. With a, and and on that one, we as clergy were given a conscience clause about how about yes. remarriage. So you said everybody has a right to be married in their parish church. Unless you're divorced, in which case it's the the, the, the local vicar yeah. has conscience about how they might go about it. Now, the rubber began to hit the road with the Church of England in the House of Lords around the issue of euthanasia. Mm. And um, my dad actually spoke on that debate, um, and it was after he had suffered um, from cancer. And uh, he, uh, I think in his speech, he essentially said, if I were given that choice, I do not know what I would have done in the pain that I was in. So I was grateful that I did not have that choice available to me in that moment. And, and that was, you know, personal plea alongside other stuff. But actually, the, essentially what the church being has said in that moment was we recognize that society wants this, but but they wouldn't have used this language. But in, in their role as chaplain to the nation, they were saying this is not a good thing. Um, and we should not be doing this as a nation. And and actually, the, the House of Lords held that, um, which has meant that euthanasia mm. isn't available in this nation. And, and that's the f- probably was the first time that there was a kind of a dissonance between a wider publicly held view and what the Church of England offered in its role as chaplains to the nation. So we find ourselves uh, on same-sex marriage and one where unlike the example you've just given, the church doesn't quite agree with itself. Yeah. So therefore doesn't quite know how to engage with the nation. Yes. Okay, so why doesn't the church agree with itself? (laughs) Why doesn't the church agree with itself? Um, Essentially, there is a clash of understanding about human identity and about... Um, the um, the identity of marriage, the role of sex and purpose of sex, and the person and work of the Holy Spirit, um, and all of those issues combined um, highlight differing understandings of how Scripture is to be read um, and interpreted in this generation and in other generations. And all of those tensions that we alluded to earlier that had existed within the Church of England for centuries that had managed to coexist because the culture was essentially Christian, Mm -hmm. in a post-Christian culture, those tensions are um, brought to the surface and are coming close to division. Brilliant, because what I want... If you're listening, the thing that I really heard you say is that this is not a simple thing. Mm. Then it's not a decision just around who can get married. Yeah, it is a. There's a series of philosophical and theological arguments that lie way back upstream about yeah. about the nature of human identity. Yeah, 
the nature of human existence, you and I would say after the fall, yeah. uh, the person and the work of Jesus, the role of the Holy Spirit, yeah. um, engagement with culture, that then leads you to a conclusion. Yeah. And so most people will be engaging with this at the end where they hear, here is a decision, yeah. and then we'll go with the gut reaction, yeah. I like this, I don't like this, yes. but won't be so much aware of everything that lies back upstream that leads people to kind of come to this. So, so for example, using your dad's mm. um, example again, lying behind why the bishops thought euthanasia was wrong was, again, an understanding of what it is to be a created being yes. and, in, and in whose hands the yes. life is, yes. and then also what it is to be an, a, identified as a child of God, and again, in whose hands, etern- you know, and yeah. thinking about Psalm 91. So they just didn't go, oh, I think this is wrong. They, there was a whole load of thinking behind it. Yes. So you can that that's an example of where you can come to the same decision but from different logic lying behind mm. it. So typically speaking a more reformed or evangelical perspective on uh, euthanasia would be looking at um uh, the euthanasia through the lens of suicide and therefore of um of um the relationship between suicide and sin which is which is not wholly overlapping um yeah uh it's not that all suicide is is sinful um but that there is a relationship between those two and and therefore um uh reformed and evangelical perspectives would would be arriving at that conclusion through that perspectives where whereas a liberal anglican perspective on euthanasia would be looking at it much more through the perspective of life and creation and what is good and what is in god's sovereignty now not exclusively that that's a that's a cartoon approach to it but it but it is a it is a cartoon description of of a scenario where people can come to the same conclusion but through different theological roots what we have in same-sex marriage is is christians who who have those differing starting points arriving at different conclusions and it's a whole range of conclusions because there are some people who will start in the same place and come with different conclusions uh, as well as people who start in different places and come with different conclusions and so for example um using the language of desires yeah so um our friend st augustine who's a friend of this podcast (laughs) some of his prayers are in the new church of england prayers yeah Uh, augustine would want us all to hear that your desires are not your identity yes but your desires are kind of almost like a a, they're they're almost like a signpost back to where your identity lies so um whereas our modern culture would say the what modern um western worlds and are kind of would say actually our desires are a clue to who we are um and augustine would say no you know and 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 but once you depending on where you start you'll end up in different places which then leads us to this issue of anti-disestablishmentarianism with the with the notion that how can a church that is increasingly marginalized numerically and culturally within society um, hold it this position of power when it can come to a conclusion that what um, has been agreed in civil law around same-sex marriage is not being echoed in the church around same-sex marriage. So how can culture say something is a good, yep. and yet the church, which is the state church, disagree? Yes. And so we are we are entering into this phase of debate about the, the church and its relationship to the nation about 
um, the, in, in the context of decisions that it is making around issues in human sexuality, which are going to affect how it is received. Uh, and um, we're, we're not going to resolve that now. We just wanted to present that and to say, actually, this is some of the stuff that's sitting underneath all of this. And this question, yeah, so this question isn't unique to any church in the West. Um, yeah. And I'm using the West deliberately there because actually for the vast majority of Christians in, in the world, this yeah. is not, this is not a, something for debate. It's, yeah. it's a kind of it's a Western post-Christian debate yeah. in the main. Um, so it's not a unique so if it's not a unique question to the Church of England, but what kind of heightens it is it's almost like we've got all these people banging on the door going, you need to make a decision now because you yeah. are the state church. Yes. Um, and, and almost and, and there's a sense where the church is like, well, yeah, no, we've got to make a decision now because we've got to make it because actually we're the state church, you know. Yeah. And somebody cruelly said that, you know, Mr. Welby needs to make a decision now because he does want he wants to be at the coronation, you know. And and but but and that's probably very unfair on Mr. on on the Archbishop. But it's but it's true. We feel a pressure yes. that we wouldn't feel if we were an independent church. Um, I kind of think like I used to remember racing into my, my my grandfather was a man who who did everything very well but very measured. And I remember yeah. kind of you racing in like to his, you know the living room yeah. going granddad granddad grandpa la and he'd just go hold on a second and he'd yeah. slow everything down. And the ch- we don't feel that we can go hold on. We're going to work this out carefully or slowly because we feel the pressure of the whole nation going, well, what are you guys up to? And I think we'd want to say that in the New Testament, just as there's no clear pattern for church, because there are different patterns, mm. there's elders and overseers, and um, uh, it's, it's different. There's no one pattern for how a local church should be. Um, that actually there's no one pattern for how a church should relate to the state. And we have, as you mentioned before we came on air, we have prophets in the Old Testament and their relationship with kings. Um, We catch the early church in a story where it is very much at the margins and and underground and persecuted in in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's a very different scenario to the scenario we've inherited being ordained into an established church. There's There's not one pattern not one thing that is advocated um the question that we need to be thinking about is what are our motives as we are in the situation that we're in is our motive wayne and james to be in an established church because we want that and we want the power and the status that that brings or are we in it because this is what jesus is ordering and he wants now And it's also going to be messier for the church of england because if you weren't established you could probably go you know because everybody's talking about how the church, what's come out this week, feels like a bit of a fudge. And then, mm. but if you weren't the established church and you weren't banged up in state, you could go. Well, we're going to have camp A and camp B, and everybody gets to decide yeah. which camp they're in, and we're going to draw up two different things. But the problem is, everybody is well. This is the state church. You can't just divide the state church in half and have state church A and state yeah. church B. And so that's what's going on. Is and that's why I think we need to be gracious and kind to to the leaders of the Church of England at the moment. Is that basically. There, it's a it's a unique situation, indeed. So, that's some of the theological foundations for anti-establishmentarianism and um, and how that works its way out in our contemporary culture and understanding what are the what are the almost like the theological tectonic plates underneath the conversations that are happening. Tune in again, and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the other issues that are going on in culture around issues in human sexuality.